welcome to the podcast for Sunday, October 15th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it was February uh, 2015 that the bishop informed uh, my family and I that we would be moving from Ia Hawaii to Palmdale, California, effective July 1st. Now, that was February. By the time May rolled around and we we're getting into moving mode, we realized we have to downsize quite a bit before we uh, come over to the mainland. So we decided to have a garage sale. Uh, we had lived at our house. It was the parsonage for IA United Methodist Church for 15 years. So literally, my kids grew up in the same house. So as you can imagine, we had all kinds of treasures that we had accumulated that we were ready to dump, I mean, bless other people in the IA community. Uh, Now, I don't think they're quite as popular in the Antelope Valley as they are in Hawaii, but in the middle Pacific Ocean, garage sales are huge. In fact, my father-in-law is practically a professional garage sailor. I mean, every week he's out there finding treasures and then reselling them later. Some folks are the early birds, and they, you know, read in the paper or see on Craigslist where the sales are. They actually get there about a half an hour before the sale starts to, you know, scout it out. See if it's worth their time, if there's any good stuff that, that they want to come. And they often are looking for certain collectibles or DVDs. Or I had one guy when we were leaving, he, he only comes for guitars. You got any guitars? I'd love to buy a guitar. Uh, and then there's others, which is sort of like me if I'm going out. I just like stop at every garage sale sign I find along the way and see if there's something there that might be uh, interesting for me to take. Well, we planned the one Saturday that fit our schedule best, and we got things set up the night before, and we put the signs out in strategic locations the following morning. Uh, We decorated our garage and our driveway with all of the treasures that we wanted to share with others, and the day went very well, primarily because we had priced everything to move, right? We weren't trying to get rich. Uh, We just wanted to, to lighten the load and pick up a little spare change to help with some of the expenses of moving along the way. Uh, and Jody even had uh, made uh, brownies that we would give out free to people when they came, but we sold bottles of water. And, you know, get, them, get them thirsty and then you know, hit them right there. Yeah. Yeah, she's a master at that. Uh, well, the one thing, though, that drove me crazy, and every time we, we probably had four or five garage sales over the life of our house, uh, that I hated every time it happened were uh, the hagglers. Like, not Marvelous Marvin Hagler, but the people that would actually come up. And, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, if you had something marked at $10, it's a vacuum cleaner. Like, you spend $75 on it, and you're like, $10, it's a great deal. And they're like, ooh, that's a nice vacuum. $10? I'll give you 7 for it. I'm like, $10, it's a deal at $10. Or we have shirts, all the shirts, uh, men's Aloha shirts, $1 each. So they grab uh, five Aloha shirts to say, how about $3 for the five shirts? Like, what? No, five dollars, five shirts, or 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 we have something that twenty-five cents, right? It's twenty-five cents. They're like ten cents. Will you take ten cents? I'm like, it's twenty-five cents for Pete's sake. No, no. And if they say, okay, I'll take it. I'm like, no, I'm not going to give it to you now for twenty-five cents. You don't. No soup for you, right? Well, I I, I came to notice in Hawaii at least that that the people that that tended to do this. Uh, over and over again were those from the Southeast Asian countries. 
Philippines, China, Korea, that sort of thing. And it was only after I visited the Philippines myself that I realized that's how everybody buys things. They weren't being rude like I thought. They, they were just doing what was expected. You bargain and barter and haggle for the best price. Well, welcome to the first week in a brand new sermon series I'm called, uh, calling Praying with Giants. And I, I think all of us know that prayer is important. It's a, it's a vital part of Christianity. And yet, there's always so many questions that surround prayer, right? Like, when is the best time to pray? And are there certain words you, you should say or you should avoid saying? Or is it okay to pray for stuff that I want or need? Or you, you, are you only supposed to pray for other people? Or uh, do our prayers have more weight with God if we haven't sinned, like, in the last 24 hours of our praying time, right? I mean, I have struggled with prayer almost all of my life, not just as a youth and young growing up, but even as a pastor. It, sometimes it seemed my best prayer time was when I was walking my dog. I don't know what that is, something about my body being engaged in some kind of physical activity that made my mind and my heart open to, to connect with God. Well, this series is not going to be about any of that. It's not going to be a how-to about prayer. We're going to look at six different prayers in the Bible... Six different people of faith that lifted up prayers and, uh, from, from the Old Testament to Jesus and see one of the prayers that each of these prayers made and see what we can learn along the way. All of these prayers are giants in biblical lore. Abraham, Moses, Solomon, Elijah, Daniel, and then Jesus. But despite the fact that we're separated by time and culture, we may be surprised at just how much we can relate to these giants. Now, I have no pre-planned agenda of the themes that I want to be able to impart with you over the series. I just figured prayer is important, and these giants who have prayed in Scripture probably have something to teach us. So we're going to kind of figure it out as we go along together. We begin with Abraham. The story of Abraham comes from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It begins in chapter 12. It's a story that anyone who's eligible for a senior discount at Denny's would have to love, right? Abraham, or Abram, was his name before uh, God changed it to Abraham later in, in Genesis 17. Abram was 75 years old when God called him to leave his home in Haran and embark on this epic adventure, a, a journey that would ultimately take him to only God knew where. Because literally, that's what God said. I want you to start walking, uh, take all your stuff and, and your family and go, and, um, you know, I'll tell you when to stop, whenever I feel like it. I mean, he didn't have the AAA, remember those old AAA t- triptychs that you would find? He doesn't have a GPS. He doesn't know where he's going. He's just walking until God tells him to stop. Well, uh, one of the people that went with uh, Abram and his wife, Sarai, his wife uh, was 66 years old at the time, no spring chicken herself. Uh, they didn't have any children, so it was just the two of them, uh, but they also brought along their nephew, Lot. Now, what was curious about this was when God first called Abraham, he said, you and your wife are going to be the father and mother of a great nation. Now, he's 75, and she's 66. They have no kids yet, but they have the nephew, Lot. Well, evidently, both uh, Abram and Lot had their share of wealth because it says, the scripture says, they left Haran with their servants, their livestock, and other possessions. And eventually, the area that they were all living as they were traveling uh, got a little bit crowded. And so, not wanting to cause problems, Abraham said, you know what, Lot, 
This is a big land. You pick the area that you want and take your servants and livestock and family down there. And then Sarah and I and and the rest of the entourage will take the other spot. And so Lot looked around and he noticed what he thought would be the prime location down by the Jordan River. It was well watered. It was lush. It was a a level area with with, uh, lots of vegetation. It also happened to be where the infamous cities Sodom and Gomorrah were located, but more on that later. And then in chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah are visited by three angelic messengers. And they uh, confide with the couple that one year from now, now this is a quarter of a century later, Abraham's almost 100 years old now, finally you're going to have your very first child, Sarah. Well, it's at this point in the story that our reading comes into play today. So I invite you to Open your Bibles or grab the Red Pew Bible in the seat in front of you or take out your phones and open up your Bible app. And we are going to start off the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. Genesis is the story of not only how uh, everything got started in, in the world's case, but also how the people of God got started off on their relationship with him. Genesis 18, beginning at verse 16. Then the angels, the three that had visited Abraham and Sarah, then the angels set out from there and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them along their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Okay, so let's make sure that we uh, have the big picture here. God is about to do something very radical, and he decides to let Abraham in on the plans before he actually carries it out. Why? Because God wants Abraham to live a life of righteousness and justice. The, The writers of Genesis note Abraham is the only person in the book of Genesis, that is said to have done righteousness and justice. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we have Abraham's righteousness and justice on one hand, and then on the other hand, we have the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there's no mention at this point in the story what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is. An unnamed cry has risen to the Lord. In biblical time, these outcries were often evoked by a miscarriage of justice. So acts of exploitation, of violence, of brutality. Unfortunately, we humans still are having those problems, aren't we? We haven't figured out how to treat one another in ways that doesn't lead to exploitation, violence, and brutality. Now, I want to stop here for a brief moment and and catch our collective breaths because what I'm about to share with you completely blew my mind when I discovered it when I was preparing for the sermon series. I mean, it literally changed the entire outlook of how I was thinking about this passage. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Wow, right? You're not tracking with me here, are you? You don't... Okay, well, 
uh, biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, in his book, The Great Old Prayers of the Old Testament, he's the one responsible for tipping me off on uh, what this amazing verse is and its far-reaching implications. Now, I'm sure I'll be uh, sharing quotes from him throughout the, the six weeks of this series, but what, when he said this, when he said this verse was one of the most important comments in all of Scripture regarding prayer, I thought I should pay attention to that. Now, here's the verse again. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The part I wanted to draw our attention to is the very last phrase of this verse that reads, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. That's how the New Revised Standard Version puts it. In fact, if you grab the Red Pew Bible, that's exactly what it says there, right? Well, Abraham is coming before God. He's about to make a, a, a particular request in prayer. And he's, he's asking, he's going to be asking for something that he's not really entitled to be asking for. He's hoping that uh, God will grant his petition. The asking itself could be very risky. He's asking God for a favor. It's kind of like a scene from The Godfather, if you want to think about it that way, right? Somebody who's not worthy of whatever it is coming to someone who has all the power that could or could not grant the request. Now, if you're looking in the Red Pew Bible, you will notice a little footnote mark at the end of verse 22. In my Bible, it's a small letter A, but I'm not sure what it is in the Pew Bible. And then down at the bottom of the page, the footnote says this. Another ancient tradition reads, while the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Now, Walter Brueggemann says, this is what's called a scribal correction. It means that at one point, the earlier versions of Genesis, the text read this way, while the Lord remained standing before Abraham, not the other way around, like our new revised standard puts it. So why is this important? Well, it says that the roles were actually reversed. Instead of Abraham coming meekly before God, God is the one who must respond to Abraham. Walter Brueggemann notes, this is one of only 18 times in the entire Old Testament, where the ancient scribes have changed the text on purpose, and they told everyone that they were changing it. Why? Because they found the theological implications to be unacceptable. I mean, let that set in for a moment, right? And it wasn't a copying error. That happens as well. Scholars will say, oh, you know, the early version said this, and some scribe along the way mistook this letter for that letter, and he wrote it this way, and then those that copied his copy also wrote it, but they know that the original was this other. No, this is not a copying error. This is an intentional, deliberate, theological correction of the text. Because the scribes thought, how could God, the creator of the universe, the author of all life, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, how could he stand before Abraham as if he was the lesser party in this transaction? And yet, the earliest versions of Genesis record it that way. So the scribes changed it. Obviously, this is wrong. It can't possibly be this. We'll just erase it and write something else in there. So Brueggemann challenges us to at least consider this potential scenario, that maybe, just maybe, in some context of prayer, the petitioner, in this case it's Abraham, is bold enough and daring enough to proceed as if he held the initiative to which God had to respond. So here, Abraham, who Genesis says is God's closest friend, stands before God with some sense of entitlement. And that's a dangerous 
That's a dangerous posture for prayer. And yet, it's one in this verse that's grounded in God's relationship with Abraham because of that covenant relationship that he said with him. And could it be that instead of Abraham, you know, standing there groveling before the Lord, please, could you possibly consider maybe, no, his prayer is a bold one that God had to respond to. Now, let's look at the specifics of the prayer, shall we? Verse 23. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, we should probably begin with the assumption that prayer is simply... Talking with God. Simple as that. Anytime you converse with the Almighty, that is prayer. Any conversation. It doesn't have to be with, with your hands folded and your head bowed and your eyes closed. It doesn't have to have any pious language or formulaic phrasing. It doesn't even have to be in a specific location like a church or at a particular time of the day. So Abraham begins his prayer, his conversation with God, with a problem that he has about God's plan for Sodom. It's just not fair, is basically what he says. Now, Abraham never questions God's power to destroy a a city. He just questions whether or not God should actually do what God is planning. I mean, doesn't God even care about the righteous that are in the city? What if there are 50 people in that city with hundreds of thousands of people? Wouldn't their lives be worth saving? And, And might not their righteousness be a basis of salvation for all of their neighbors as well? I mean, Abraham is pressing God to move towards generosity and grace when it comes to the city of Sodom. And when he says, far be it from you, Brueggemann tells us, eh, that's actually kind of a weak translation of the original Hebrew. A more accurate one, which would convey the passion of Abraham's prayer, would be, it would be defiling of you or it would make you polluted. Abraham's arguing that if God just indiscriminately wipes out the entire city, it would go against God's own holiness. It would cheapen, it would trivialize, it would violate who the people of Israel had come to know that who God was. And Abraham implies, well, man, if you've already made up your mind without hearing all the evidence first, well, how fair is that, God? And surprisingly, God agrees with his line of reasoning. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Wow. So evidently the righteousness of some can bring the salvation of the whole. And so God agrees, yeah, if there are 50 righteous ones, Sodom will be saved. This this is a great example of intercessory prayer, right? Abraham is not praying for himself. He's praying for this people, this entire huge community of people. But he's not done yet. Suddenly Abraham is like, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not too confident about finding 50, so... Uh, verse 27. Abraham answered, well, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So after this initial prayer of intercession uh, and the request for God's generosity and grace for the people, now comes the time of haggling. And we go back to the garage sales, right? Now, 50 righteous 
To save an entire city, that's a great bargain. That's absolutely, but Abraham isn't content to stop there. He haggles God down to try for the best deal. Now, if I was God, I'd be like, that's it, forget it, nope, nope, no soup for you. I mean, I, I put the price there for a reason, right? No. But it turns out that's exactly not only how things work in Southeast Asia, but that's how things work in the Middle East as well. Former Yale Divinity uh, School preaching professor, Dr. Halford E. Lookock, in his collection of sermons marching off the map, talks exactly about this type of scenario. He said to Arabs, Jews, and others around the Mediterranean, bargaining or haggling is almost a religious rite. A a fixed price would be unthinkable, a sacrilege. It's constantly seen in Cairo, Jerusalem, and Istanbul. A seller might say something like this. Oh, this Persian rug was made for King Xerxes himself. It was passed down through the royal family over the centuries. Ah, If I were to sell it for the beggarly pittance of $1,000, my wife would die of starvation. My children would have to go on the streets with a beggar's cup. That's how it started. And then it would go back and forth, and two hours later, the rug would be sold for $150. (laughs) And, he said, the seller would be getting far more than the rug was worth at $150, right? That's just how it goes. So Abraham begins high, and then he starts haggling God down. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, and then we get to verses 32 and 33. And then Abraham said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose ten are found there. And God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So now we know the bargain basement price is ten righteous people. If God will just find ten righteous people in Sodom, the whole city will be saved. Now, we don't know why Abraham stopped at the number 10. He was doing so good, right? Every number that he suggested, God agreed to it. Uh, Maybe he didn't want to offend God by going way too low. Some scholars believe it might be due to the fact that in Jewish tradition, there have to be 10 adult males present to have any worship service. That group is called a minion. So maybe Abraham figured that if he couldn't even get a minion, even 10 faithful men to gather for worship, ah, maybe there's no hope at all for the city. Whatever the reason, by the time we get to the end of Genesis 18, both God and Abraham had reached an understanding. Through his prayer, Abraham had had moved God towards a readiness to forgive. That the uh, the justice of the judge of all would be marked by mercy. I mean, what a daring prayer by Abraham is. And what what an amazing picture of God as well. That God is ready and willing to interact with us, his creations, when it comes to the destiny of the world. That prayer, especially intercessory prayer, when we pray on behalf of others, that matters to God. That God is willing and eager to listen to us whenever we have a passion for issues of justice and mercy in the world around us. So what happened to the city of Sodom, you might ask? Well, that plays out in the next chapter, Genesis 19, and... It doesn't go so well for the people of Sodom uh, and their neighbors in Gomorrah. In the end, no comment is made of there being any righteous people being found there. And neither the narrator nor Abraham offer any protest about what God does. Genesis 19:24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So what was it 
that made God destroy these evil and wicked cities. Centuries later, the prophet Ezekiel would say this. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Whenever injustice, oppression, greed, selfishness rear their ugly heads, God calls us to respond with justice and compassion. And not just in biblical times either, but still today. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah lived in sharp contradiction to how God wanted the world to be, how people should relate to one another. Now, not everyone in Sodom died. God saved Lot, his wife, and their two daughters, at least initially. There's also this crazy story where uh, Lot's wife looks back on the city when God has specifically said, don't look back, keep looking forward. And the storyteller tells us she's turned into a pillar of salt. But what I really want us to focus on is at the end of Genesis 19, beginning at verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and saw the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. Now notice it doesn't say that Lot was righteous and deserved rescue. It just says that God remembered Abraham and so he saved Lot and his family. I think he not only remembered his, their prayerful conversation, interaction from the day before, but also Abraham's life and faithfulness. And in the midst of all this injustice and disorder of the world, God remembered Abraham and his willingness to pray for others, a passionate plea for grace and mercy. Abraham had, had bargained God down that if there's just 10 righteous people in the city, uh, then it would be saved. Would, would, the, would the innocents... Would the, would the wickedness of so many outweigh the innocence of the few? And evidently, there weren't that many innocent in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, it's not the only time in the Bible where they're looking for a few good men and women, so to speak. Jeremiah 5.1 says this, Run to and thro- fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and take notes. Search its squares and see if you can find one person who acts justly and seeks truth so that I may pardon Jerusalem. The response, of course, is there isn't even one righteous person in all of the city of Jerusalem. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says this, There is not one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. So does this mean that Abraham's prayer was ultimately pointless? That it was a futile effort in arguing with God or engaging with God? That if God wouldn't even found ten righteous because there aren't even one righteous, why even pray at all? I mean, did God just think, ah, I know that's not going to happen, and so whatever you say, I'll agree to? I think it's because we serve a God who does not give up on us. Even in our sinfulness and our selfish nature. The book of Hosea, chapter 11, is a beautiful chapter that lays out God's relationship with the people of Israel. And and despite all of the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that God extended, he says the people still wandered away. They still forsook God. They still went after things that were not healthy. It's not just a story of Israel. It's a story of the human race, right? That we can't be the way even we want to be in relationship with God because of our sin and our human frailty. 
but it doesn't end with us. It never ends with us. Hosea 8, or 11, uh, 8 and 9, oh, I don't have that one, says this. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So God has changed the way he operates with with our sinful people. The Bible is full of verse after verse that mentions God's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy, even when we uh, have not uh, deserved it. That's what Abraham's prayer was all about. And he was challenging God for mercy and forbearance. He was bargaining that God might find just ten faithful people and the rest of the city would be saved. That wasn't the case. But he did find one faithful person, Abraham found, and that one faithful person was God. God in his faithfulness remembered Abraham and saved Lot and his family, though they were unworthy. And it was the foretaste of something even greater to come, something the prophet Isaiah spoke about. When he said, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because Jesus was the one the sinless one, the one person whose nature was righteousness. He was the one whose life became the saving of everyone else that had come before and after him. Thanks be to God. The Jewish rabbis love retelling the story of Abraham haggling with God over the city of Sodom. It's a reminder that we humans have an enormous responsibility when it comes to this ongoing maintenance of the universe. Because what we say matters to God. What we say matters to God, especially when it comes to the many different ways that our world is not the way it should be right now. So whenever you see injustice, intolerance, discrimination, racism, violence, oppression, evil in whatever form it presents itself, whenever you see that, the story of Genesis 18 should make us fall on our knees and pray for our community, our nation, and for the world. Our love and compassion has a role to play in this world we live in. And while we're doing our part, while we are engaging in prayer with God, know that there is one who has already done his part. Jesus Christ, God's only son, has shown us what it means to truly love one another. He lived a life of overcoming barriers, of reaching out to the outcasts, of standing up for those who had been pushed aside, neglected, and forgotten. And it was his life, death, and resurrection that paved the way for God's continued mercy, forgiveness, and grace. And so that, my friends, is why we pray. Because of what Jesus has done for everyone. Even all of us sheep who have gone astray. Thanks be to God for this powerful prayer of Abraham. And our call, our challenge, our opportunity to follow in his footsteps. And all God's people said, Amen.